This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. You've got your Bibles out. Would you go to the book of Romans chapter 4? My name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm so glad that you're here. If you've got your Bibles, heads up, we're going to be in Psalm 51, Psalm 32, and in 2 Samuel. You know, you're like, well, that's a lot of verses, but you know the way that you, um, in soccer practice, what do they tell the kids? You know, Escalon, you got a soccer kid? The more you touch the ball, the more comfortable you are with it. The more touches, the more touches you've got on the Bible, the more comfortable you are with it. So I encourage you to, to bring your Bibles and to follow along with that. Now, as you're finding it... Um, AD 45, uh, not 8080, AD 45, sometime around then, an emperor named Claudius said to a group of people that you do not have the right paperwork, uh, you do not qualify for purchasing things, you can't uh, do commerce here, and now because you are this people group that, is, um, that doesn't fit here, we are now going to exile you completely from the city. And this group of people were the Jewish people who in AD, somewhere around AD 45, 6, 7, 4, somewhere in that range, there's nobody who's 100% sure, the Jewish people were banished from the city of Rome, lost their possessions, lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods, and were then removed from the city. So, so to put that in somewhat in perspective, if, if Nashville was Rome, uh, they were banished to say, like, Tuscaloosa. Sorry, my apologies if anybody's from Tuscaloosa. Okay, I'm going to take one for the team. Banished to Nebraska. Someplace not so glamorous, not necessarily destination, but any place but here. This group of people are now just trying to make ends meet. So one of them is a couple named Aquila. And Priscilla, and students of the Bible recognize them from the book of Acts, they found their way to a city called Corinth. And I view them as, they were kind of like the Bob and Carol of the early church. Like, you didn't, like, you know what I mean? You know, Bob and Carol Carlyon, if you've not been around for very long, you, they're literally like a dynamic duo, like Batman and Robin. You just don't say one without the other, Aquila and Priscilla. And just like Bob and Carol, Aquila and Priscilla were not uh, just happy just to go hang out in Corinth. They got to work in Corinth. They're building tents. They're making, making stuff happen in Corinth. Making tents there, trying to make things happen. And it was there that Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, lived with them, made tents alongside of them, and became friends with them, and the gospel went forth in Corinth because of that. Now, why do I bring that up? Because about a decade later, a new emperor gets in charge at Rome, and this guy lifts the ban and the exile and allows the Jews to come back to Rome. So people picked up what was left of their lives. Some of them had new lives, but they went back to Rome. They went back to their old hometown. They went back to their old church. And what happens to a church inside of 10 years? It kind of changes a little bit. The city around them changed a little bit. The, the, the Jewish people that left a Jewish-focused church come back to a Roman church, which was more Gentile-focused. And so you can see why Paul, in the book of Romans, is basically saying, hey, to you Gentiles, chapter one, 
That's not going to work to save you. And hey, to you Jews who think you've got this all figured out with your moralism and the work that you're doing and your religion and your snipping, and all, that's not going to do it either. And then he moves to chapter 3 and tells them that it's actually by grace that you're going to be saved, through faith, right? But that's how you're going to be saved. The idea of your justification, that's how it's going to come about. And here's why this is important. I bring this up because we're in a nothing new under the sun moment. People are being moved into categories. People groups are being taken care of here and there. And, and honestly, even in our own culture, there's this idea, by the way, also not new, that if I can just make the problems of the world about this system, and if I call for this system to be collapsed, if I criticize it hard enough, overthrow this system, then that will fix the world and that will save us all. It's called critical theory, and it was started by Karl Marx. Criticize it hard enough. Now, here's why I'm bringing it up, because if I make it about a system that I can overthrow and not about my own sin, it distracts from the fact that there is no such thing as a system without sin, without people inside of it. So if I just make it about that, then I am ignoring my own sin and my own, and as Oz Guinness in the Magna Carta of Humanity, and if you haven't read that and you're looking for some fun beach read, the Magna Carta of Humanity by Oz Guinness brings up this idea of, of the two kinds of revolutions. If you're gonna start a revolution, you better doggone well know what you're replacing the current system with that it won't be worse than the one you just tore down. Do you wonder why Rome, why Paul didn't try to overthrow the Roman system, but instead focus on what we're about to talk about, which is forgiveness, which is about sin and about justification? Because it was just gonna be a couple hundred years when someone was gonna overthrow the system and what it was going to be replaced with was a religion that got intertwined with the government that ultimately brought us the Crusades. They replaced one oppressive system with another oppressive system. That's why Jesus didn't come to seek and save systems. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save you and me and believers full of the Holy Spirit and Jesus in involved in the private life, involved in government life. That's the way that Jesus intended not to overthrow it, but to transform you and then transformed people go and transform cities. Now with that in mind, I want to read to you from Romans chapter four, and I'm just going to read the first uh, few verses. We're going to read verses um, four through eight, and then we're going to read verses 18 through 25. So now, let's, do, let's start with verse uh, 4 in Romans 4. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. 
And then to verse 18, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would your word speak to us today? Would I pray that your word would be promised it to be a, a light for us, a, a, for a, just a light for our path, Lord. It's in a dark world like it is right now, Lord. We need it as much as we've ever needed it before. We need your, your light and your forgiveness, and we need your direction and your leading in our lives. And Holy Spirit, we invite you, I invite you specifically to speak to us individually uh, Lord, that your word would be literally that to us personally, that we could hear your voice today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In this book of Romans, Paul making this case to the Gentiles and to the Jewish people. He gets to chapter four and he's now looking to his Jewish brothers and sisters who have thought that I've worked so hard, that I have done so much that I should surely get in based upon my work. And what he does is he takes two of, his, of their heroes. And by the way, heroes that we would call as heroes, Abraham and David. And we spent last week talking about Abraham, Abraham who was justified by faith, not by works. Abraham wasn't justified before he was circumcised. He was justified before that because he believed. But Paul then says, and also your boy David. This guy David that you guys put so much weight on, he also was justified, was forgiven, not because of how good he was, but because of how good God is. One of the greatest like, revelations I ever had was there are no, God's not looking for a good person to call, a good person to, to bring in, because there are none. He's just looking for a bad person to justify and to redeem. He's looking for you. He's looking for me. And he found one in Abraham, and he found one in David. And instead of Paul saying, look, overthrow the throne of David, because David was a misogynistic, murdering adulterer. It doesn't make David look great, but man, it makes God look amazing because of his redemption and his power. And if he could do that for David, what do you think he'd do for you and for me? And in the time we have today, there's so much here. We could plumb the depths of this for days and 
Some of you are like, please, Darren, let's not. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. When you see a skinny preacher, you need to be worried. Okay? Do you know why the skinny guys are? They're not thinking about lunch. I've been thinking about lunch since this morning. Okay? I'm ready for lunch. So we're not going to be here all day. But I would encourage you to go later and to spend time in this passage and to see what God would speak to you personally. But what I feel like God is speaking to to us today and to me specifically is that there are three things right here that he says actually in in these first few verses, four and five, right, which is that blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are forgiven. All right, are covered. So blessing of that, right? Then there is the blessing of, of, uh, of your sins being covered, and there is the blessing of your sins not counting forward. And then there is the last, which is the power of all that happens to us to begin with. And I want to show you today why this is so important, that if we start with this, that we don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to overthrow something because God is going to transform us and then we let him take care of the rest of that. What do I mean when I say the blessing of forgiveness? I don't know how many of you remember the story of Bathsheba. Most of you do, okay? But I want to just for a quick overflow, uh, overview, just in case you don't, remind you that David was a king, okay? He was chosen specifically by a prophet. David was dominating in the king world, doing great. And at a time when the kings were supposed to go out to war, the story in 2 Samuel tells us that David looked out off of his roof and saw on the roof down below, and I've actually been in the city of David in Israel in Jerusalem, they have found the original where they believe to be the, the, the palace of David. And there's plenty of proof for this. My buddy Zev Orenstein has taken us on some great tours there. But when you're looking over the top, you look down and people took baths on the roof. They didn't have bathtubs, took them on the roof. You've been to Haiti, you'll know that is not unusual. You stand up there going, hey, well, that, that uh, person needs a towel. Um, but David looking down, and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath. Her name is Sheba, but because she was taking a bath, her name henceforth became Bathsheba. Don't forget to tip your waiters and waitresses. I'll be here all week. Dude, look, that joke is so old. I'll bet Martin Luther told that joke. You know what I'm saying? I'll bet Jesus told that joke. That joke is so easy. It's like low-hanging fruit, and I apologize for that. But he looks down, he sees Bathsheba. He is in love. He thinks he's beautiful. And he does uh, what any king who is arrogant and, and prideful would do. He wants her for his own. She becomes pregnant and he hatches a plan to murder her husband, okay? Not exactly the kind of guy you want your daughter bringing home to marry, right? He's making some terrible decisions. And so when you hear him say, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, that's who Paul is quoting. This is straight out of Psalm 32. And by the way, do you think Paul might have been blessed to have his sins forgiven? 
How many Christians did he kill? How many executions did he oversee? How many properties did he seize before following Jesus? You don't think that the enemy would want to haunt him with the pain of his sin. But Paul, writing this a good solid 25, 30 years into his ministry, was able, he's able to say, blessed is the man, blessed are you whose transgressions are forgiven. And he doesn't just stop with that. He goes on to say, and blessed are those whose sins, right, the same verse, whose sins are covered. Now, when you first read that, it's sort of uncomfortable because you think the cover-up is what gets you in trouble, right? It's, it, 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 are we saying that David's sins is, is what he's saying, that my sins are covered up? But that's not what he's saying. The cover-up is what gets you in trouble. The cover-up is when you're lying about it. The cover-up is what gets every politician on the news for way longer than they meant to be because they lied about it and they just didn't come clean. And that's not the promise is that blessed is the man whose sins are covered up. God does not cover up your sins, but he covers over you. Because everyone in this room has had something in your life that you have done that you maybe are continuing to do and covering it up isn't gonna help you but covering over you with the presence of God is the very thing that can bring you peace in the middle of it. You see Psalm 32 where it says blessed are those, right, whose sins are forgiven, transgressions covered, yeah. It goes on to say in verse three, while I was still silent, it was like I had like fire in my bones. And what he's referring to is Psalm 51. He covers it in Psalm 51. That right after the murder happened, right after all this stuff was going wrong, what did David do? He did what every, every hot-blooded American man, every man on the planet would do. He was covering it up. He was hiding it. He wasn't talking about it to anybody. And in Psalm 51, if you've got your Bibles, you can see the difference between when he wrote the book of, uh, when he wrote Psalm 51 versus when he wrote Psalm 32. These aren't, by the way, in chronological order, in case you're wondering. This is a collection of songs. But in 51, this is right after he has murdered Uriah, right after he has taken Bathsheba as his own. And he says in verse five of that, for I know my transgressions and my sins is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You can feel the angst of this. He's in the midst of it. And if you're at the beginning and you've made these decisions, and if you're covering this stuff up, it just sits inside of you. And if you have not discovered the blessing of forgiveness, but the blessing of confession, 
Quick clarification. I do not believe that you only are forgiven when you confess your sin. I could make a case for that. We don't have time. If you want to continue to confess to get forgiveness, totally a conviction you could have. But I think that First John tells us, for every sin I have committed, every sin I am committing, every sin I ever will commit, that is forgiven. But if I hold it inside of me, and even just the idea of speaking it out loud to my father, but even more so speaking it in a group of men or a group of women where I could speak it out loud, something miraculous happens, and David talks about it here. And if you've been involved in addiction, if you've ever sat in an AA circle or an NA circle where you have said and confessed, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and in a group of men, and they say, look, I'm still coming back next week, keep coming back, it frees something out of your bones. And we have medical, physiological, scientific evidence that that actually, if you don't, causes inflammation in your heart, it causes anxiety, it causes blood pressure, and it's just a biblical principle that God's saying, look, you don't want to do this, this is the scariest thing you're ever going to do, and you, it is going to be the most amazing gift you could ever give yourself to speak it out loud. There's just something about confessing, even if it's confessing to the Father, the sins out loud, God, this is what I have done. Not to get forgiveness, but to just get the peace of God that passes all understanding. There is a blessing in that forgiveness, a blessing that removes the sickness from our bones, this blessing of it, and the, the blessing of me saying it out loud, the blessing of God covering me now with his peace that passes understanding. But it's important for me to say this, that it is not mean. Here's why I need to say this. When I went to Bible college, I had some fairly bad theology, shall we say. One of my theology points, did not hear this in any class, was Jesus said, if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, then you've already done it, right? And I thought, well, doggone it, I might as well get my money's worth. That's terrible theology. But at 21, it made perfect sense to me. If you've already done this in your heart, might as well do it, because you've already done it. Bad theology. And by the way, led me down some terrible decisions to some broken hearts and to some broken relationships and to some broken ideas. And I say that because the sin is forgiven. 100% is forgiven. So far that he goes on to say, blessed are those whose sins the Lord doesn't count against them. The blessing of forgetting, of God forgetting. He says in verse, uh, chapter 8 of verse 12 of Hebrews, their sins I will remember no more. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31. So my sins don't count in, in, in the eternal accounting, that my sins don't count on that. But the consequences, those are all mine, baby. And those are all yours. So when you ask the question, why not just sin more if we 
Get God's money's worth. Jesus went to all that trouble. Let Jesus have his money's worth. And you can think that sounds really silly, but we're gonna see some of those arguments as Romans goes on, right? And Paul talks about it another point, like, should I just sin more that grace might abound? Why not? He's like, that's nuts. That's kooky talk. And I wanna show you why. Because back to David, David's sins were forgiven, right? His sins did not count against him. But his consequences, they were there. God covered him without covering up his sin. If you've still got your finger in First or Second Samuel, I'm just gonna read a couple of verses because I wanna show you how this unfolded in David's life. So David, by this point in Second Samuel, let's start in chapter 15. I'm just gonna read one verse from a couple of chapters. By this point, David has already murdered Uriah. David's son had already been born. David was king. Things seemed to be going really, really well for him. He had a guy named Ahithophel, one of his most trusted advisors, his right-hand man, dominating. And suddenly, he has a son named Absalom, not from Bathsheba, but from another mom, who begins to look at the way things are going and not really appreciative of how it's going and begins to rise up, cook up a scheme to overthrow David from his throne. And if you're there, 2 Samuel 15, verse 31, David is going to his right-hand man, Ahithophel. David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. David's right-hand guy that's supposed to be his guy, now betraying him and now working with his son to overthrow him. Now when you think of consequences, Absalom was replaced. Right? Absalom's mom was replaced by David's new hot mom. Absalom's Sister had been assaulted by a half-brother, and David did nothing. You think that Absalom was building up some hatred and some anger because David's sin, God had forgiven it, God was covering it, but it was still hurting what was happening in Absalom and his life. And so he rises up, he works with Ahithophel, one of the most painful things he could have done, work with that guy, David's right-hand guy, to betray him. Now, over one chapter, chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Ahithophel said to Absalom, he's not just going to let Absalom do this, Ahithophel now, his trusted advisor is saying, I'm going to choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him when he is weary and weak. I'll strike him with terror. Basically, Ahithophel's saying, I will kill him myself. How did Ahithophel go from being his right-hand, most trusted advisor to being the guy that is plotting to kill David himself? Flip two chapters backwards to chapter 11. You're getting your touches on your Bible today, right? Chapter 11 and verse 3. This is the first time you begin to hear David is asking, hey, tell me who this hottie is uh, taking a bath down the, uh, down the street from me. 
So David sent someone, verse 3, to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And if you dig a little bit deeper, we don't have time to go there, this one chapter over, you find out that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. The son, Eliam, is Uriah's son. So, I'm sorry, Ahithophel, getting this wrong in my genealogy, Ahithophel is the father of Bathsheba's father. He is his, her grandfather. Now think about it, granddads. Some hotshot king swoops in, kills your granddaughter's husband, and gets away with it? You think that might put a rock in your shoe? I should have hit the fill of forgiven David, <laughs> probably, but he didn't. And my point is, the sins that we are tempted to commit, the sins that we are, there is no such thing as a victimless sin. It breaks promises, it breaks relationships, it breaks even at the social fabric of society and it will come back and haunt you. So when I'm speaking of sin and speaking of holding tight to the gospel, it's not so that you can get forgiven, it's not so that you can get in right standing with God, it's so that you have minimal consequences in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your children, because those things exist in the Genesis 3 world. You cannot tear apart at the fabric of society and expect it to be a consequenceless sin. Now I will say the last and then we've got to get you out of here. In the last few verses, it talks about Abraham hoped against hope. That it's through faith that he pressed in. Abraham, by the way, had his own set of consequences. Abraham had his own sets of decisions. I mean, keeping in mind, it was Abraham that went with Hagar who gave birth to Ishmael, who gave birth to what is much of what's happening in the Middle East right now because Abraham just couldn't wait on God. But on the other hand, Abraham in faith made some decisions that to this day we still benefit from. But the one that I want you to see the most before we go home is this, that it wasn't because Abraham was so good. It wasn't because David was so good. It was because Jesus was so awesome. And back to Romans chapter four, when it says that very last verse there, when he says that it is because Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. When we talk about being covered, I'm going to tell you the gospel and, and one idea here, which is I'm covered. The Bible tells me that in Christ, I am now clothed in his righteousness. But what is crucifixion? They didn't behead Jesus. They didn't quarter him. They didn't put him in front of a firing squad with crossbows. They crucified him. Crucifixion is the ultimate uncovering. 
Crucifixion is literally stripped to nothing, completely helpless, completely uncovered. The crucifixion of Jesus becoming completely uncovered steps in so that now I and you in him will be covered in his righteousness. Because what I deserve is to be uncovered. What I deserve is to be sold up the river. I deserve to be Harvey Weinstein all day long. You need to know everything I've ever, that's what I deserve. But Christ steps in and says, you can't bear the weight of that and you can't dig yourself out of that and so I will take it for you. And he was handed over his death for our sins. And why is it that way? David said in Psalm 51 that against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned, speaking of Uriah. Now, if I were Uriah, I might have had an opinion about that. Was David wrong? Or is it because Uriah was made in God's image? Is it because Uriah is imago day? And that a crime against Uriah is a crime against God because he murdered God's creation, God's good earth. So whether or not Uriah would have forgiven David, the one, the eyes of the universe, the one that he had sinned against the most, looks at David and says, the crime was against me, and because of that, I'm going to step in, take the punishment for the crime that you committed against me, and if you will just believe, then you walk out of here clothed in righteousness. Blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is those are those whose sins are covered. We are covered in his righteousness. Blessed are those whose sins the Lord doesn't count against them. The people in your life that you harm, they might count them against you, but the eyes of the universe, the only judge, the only person gonna be standing before me and the Father on judgment day is me. And he looks at me and says, Darren, I don't count that against you. I have put it in my account, and your account is zero. And there is not a single dadgum thing that I could have done to have made that happen. We know it intuitively. Someone is killed in a car accident. What do we do? We sue them for money. Does money bring back the person? No. It just puts a little bit of a salve on a wound that can never be healed because you don't have the currency to bring back a human life. I don't have the currency to fix that problem. And so I have to throw myself on the mercy of the court and the only one who can. And I encourage you to do the exact same thing today before we leave here. I want to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that as my brothers and sisters here today are standing in your presence, Lord, that they would believe and receive by faith, what you did for us. To understand this exercise in futility, I can't work my way out of it. I can't make my way out of it. I can't do anything but receive it. And it's so beautiful because that's all you want me to do. Lord, would you encourage our brothers and sisters here today 
to call upon your name, to believe, to repent, to change our minds of that sin, change my mind about that, and turn to you today, Jesus, to receive, to believe and receive what you have done through faith, not through my work, but through yours. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, I pray that God continues to speak to you even as you leave here today. Blessed are you whose sins are forgiven. Blessed are you, right, whose transgressions are forgiven. You're blessed as you leave here today. God bless.